Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Porretz from Ingenuity Coaching. Tonight's guest is a childhood hero of mine, Sonny Fox. Sonny was involved with TV when they were making it up as they went along, and he was the host of the kids' show Wonderama in New York when I was growing up, which makes him one of my biggest early influences. He's had a long career behind the scenes in television as a producer, and now, at four score and seven years of age, he has a terrific new book called, But You Made the Front Page. Now, before I bring Sonny Fox on, I want all of you big kids out there, and you know who you are, I want you to raise your hands over your head and start waving along to the music about to hear and I probably should add that Simon says, hands in the air. Okay, Simon says put your hands down and you can now listen to the show. Sonny, are you there? I am, and having heard the music, I'm prepared for the next four hours. (laughs) I'm glad you told me that because we've extended the show to four hours. You just have to do it like the old days. Well, I didn't bring my Bugs Bunny cartoons. Let's hack it down to two hours. Okay, okay. we'll we'll see if we can uh, squeeze it it down just a little bit. So uh, this is uh, very, very exciting for me. Personally, I'm sure it is for a lot of people who are listening or will be listening as it's a podcast. Now, you and I actually um, uh, not only met recently uh, at your book signing, uh, but I had the great opportunity to meet you at the age of 10. Mm. And I was, I was not much older, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we have, yeah, we have a, uh, you and I have a bonding that goes beyond, or in addition, that leads to one drama, which is the New York football giants. Mm-hmm. Your, your dad was doing publicity PR for the New York Giants, right? Right. My dad was very involved in the PR in the 60s for the Giants. Which is when I was very involved with the Giants. Of course, I'm still involved with them, but... Oh, I did not know that. But in the, in the, uh, in the, in the 60s... We did a lot of stuff with the Giants, and I got to know Ali Sherman quite well as a result of that. We'd have drinks at the 21 and and things of that sort. So he told me some interesting stories about how Wonderama affected his family. Really? Yeah, he, he told me that one day. Backtrack. I had a contest. We had a contest on Wonderama for Water Boy, or Water Girl, I suppose, for the day. Being that it should be on the sidelines and, and have the titular title of water boy for the team. Now, the climax of the four hours was drawing for that particular prize, but in the intervening four hours, every hour, I, we drew an intervening uh, thing, and the person who who got that card uh, drawn would win two tickets to the Giants game. So the, there were eight, eight tickets given out plus the ultimate prize. Ali came home one day, and he, his daughter came screaming to him, Daddy, Daddy, guess what? My friend won the tickets, and I'm going to the game with her. Now, this is the coach of the New York football Giants. <laughs> she could have gone and sat, and sat in the owner's box probably any week she wanted. But the fact that it came through one drama made the tickets exciting. 
By the way, we're having a little bit of a, a challenge on the sound. I don't know if it's your phone or the Blog Talk radio system. Ah, probably my phone, but I, I'm I'm hearing you fine. I'm okay, hearing good. me. I'm certainly hearing me fine. Okay, good. So where did we leave off on the? Uh, where did you drop me? Well, I I heard you, but there was a lot lot of a little bubbling bubbling there, like the the oh, sound disappearing. It's, it might be the champagne. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, you get the point that. Uh, that it was an evidence of the unique quality that came attached to the show. Uh, he also told me another story. You know, the, new, the, the football giants, when he was the coach, were not having good years, as you remember. They were, they were having losing years. And a lot of rumors were around that Ali Sherman was going to be fired as the coach. And he told me his kids would go to school, and the other kids would taunt them, saying, ah, your father's going to be fired, ha-ha. And he said, but that was a learning experience for them. They learned that life isn't always mm-hmm. about winning. And in a way, that reflects in the book I've written. And that's why the title is what it is, but you made the front page. Let me ex- may I explain that? Absolutely. I was vice president of children's programming at NBC in 1977. The corporation decided that financial matters had intruded. They had to fire 300, they had to close out 300 slots. And they decided without a vice president of children's programming, and I got fired. Now, after the news came out, the next day, the New York Post had big banner headlines, bloodbath at NBC. And then they followed with the names of the more prominent members of NBC who had gotten canned. Although they only had room on the front page for one name, mine. I get it. I'm staring balefully at this at the desk, and my assistant comes in and she says, "Your mother's on the phone." I get a what? She said, "Congratulations." I said, "What?" She says, "I'm reading the New York Post." I said, "Mom, it says I got fired." Yeah, but you made the front page. So that's the okay. title because what she did is she flipped a negative with that one little sentence. She flipped a negative into a positive. And, you know, he did that, Ali Sherman did that, when he told me the story about his children being taunted about his possibility of getting fired. He said, yes, but it was a learning experience. And that's a leitmotif in the book, which is how to fail without being a failure. And everybody thinks of my successes, but they were failures, like getting fired for a $64,000 challenge. The most public kind of humiliation one get watched by 40 million people mm. being fired not from a show that's failing but cheating and you're failing and that isolates you and pow editorials and newspaper articles and I mean it was about as public a humiliation as one would want to get and how to deal with that and yet walk away from it and say okay that didn't work but life goes on and I'm just thinking of another one from like around the time, the same time period would be Julius LaRosa mm-hmm. uh, being uh, being the dropped Godfrey, yeah. from Arthur Godfrey in, yeah. very publicly. Yeah. And and the, the thing, the thing, one, 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 first of all, I'm a great advocate of walking through a, a door. Door opens, you go through it. I, I don't mm-hmm. care if you don't know what's on the other side. You, you, but, but, and yeah, you know, there may be a trap door you fall through. But the point is, 
also you're going to meet a lot of interesting people, have a lot of interesting experiences, and find out a lot of wonderful things about life if you take chances. Mm. If, if, if if the door opens and and you, and you think it's valid or you think it's exciting, go for it. But you have to be armored to do something like that. And being armored means you have to be ready to fail without failing. You say, okay, that part failed. And mm. but I'm not a failure. You know, I tried, it didn't work. Okay, press on. You actually had a great line that I, I wrote down this line, if I could find it, about uh, not being a failure. Well, I, you, I, okay, here it was. I had failed in a very noted way. I was not a failure. Yeah, exactly. And that was, that really that stood was after out. the $64,000 chance. And it's interesting because I had not really dealt with that in any philosophical way when it was happening. When you live your life day by day, year by year, and over all those years, you know, you remember the events, you, you remember the hurts, you remember the glories, and so on. But this overview, when I sat down to write the book, I began to make connections I had not made while I was living my life. Mm. And those are some of the connections. For instance, nothing in my professional life followed any plan of mine. Not one thing, pretty much, that shaped my professional life happened because I intended it to happen. I sought it out. I was never going to be in show business. That was not on my game plan. I was never going to be a performer. I was never going to go into children's television. None of that was anything I intended to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I look at my whole life and I thought, maybe I should, uh, and I, I think I mentioned this in the book, in the introduction, that, that maybe at one point I was going to call my book, Meet Me at the Crossroads of the Impossible and the Inevitable. Because that's the way it feels. You know, it also could have been called. Um, you know, the, the, you know the title of your of the song I played at the beginning. Mm, ain't down yet. I ain't down yet. Yeah, yeah, could have been that, but that was too negative. I, I like I like the positive mm. energy of. But you made the front page. Yeah, that, that, it, it really is a it's an eye catcher. And I didn't know what to call the book. I had so many times because people said you have to use the word of wonder drama. Everybody knows wonder drama. I use wonder drama the time. I said, yeah, but it's more than wonder drama. It's about growing up in in Brooklyn. It's about being in the war. It's about all the other shows I have done, the people I have met, and the musicals I've produced, and so on. It's so much more than that. So I was wrestling with that. We went through a whole bunch of titles, and I wasn't happy with any of them. And then I was telling somebody the story just as I told it to you about my mom. And as I hit, told them the, the tagline, I said, oh, my God, that's the title. And that came very late. That came all just uh, almost about two or three weeks before the deadline of having a title. You know, by the way, when you when you start to talk about your mother in the book, you open it with with the line that is, it is such a great line because it's so Jewish. It is, is so our people. You can't read my story without you should hear about my mother. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny how my voice changed. And I didn't intend that to happen. It's just that as I started to talk about that, that's the way it came out. Mm -hmm. And you'll find tenses change from past tense to present. I'm telling a story and suddenly many, many years ago, and suddenly it's in the present tense because as I'm writing it, I'm in the story. And so mm -hmm. it becomes the present tense. And people said, well, you know, you've changed tenses. I said, yes, I didn't know that, but indeed I did. And yes, it's appropriate because that's exactly the reflex. See, this is, I'm not a writer. 
in the sense that I cannot sit down and create out of nothing a set of characters and a dramatic storyline mm-hmm. and create a novel. I don't think I could do that, nor would I even have the chutzpah to try. But but I am a narrator. I am a storyteller. And the only way I could do this was to bring you into the story with me, is to bring whoever reads this book and make them feel like they're living that moment with me as I relive it, which is what the way the book works, it seems. Mm. But the one, it, definitely one thing about this book is as it reads, it so reads in your voice. There's no chance it could be anybody else writing. When I started out, I had a writer. I called up a friend I knew who was a writer. I said, help me start this. You know, maybe write it with me. And so she helped organize things and sorted out all my stuff I had saved, and that was very valuable. Hmm. But my, my, my life is not sorted into you know, non-acid uh, things where you keep the I have the stuff from the kids' letters and the kids' phone and the pictures of covering all those years, not just Wonderama. And every letter, every letter I sent back for when I was in the army, my mother saved. The cards she tried to say send that came back when I was in POW camp or missing in action, whatever. Uh, they're all there. So I had she did that. Then we started writing together, and she wrote. I wrote some of my stuff, and then she wrote it, rewrote it. When she rewrote it, it was much smoother. Mm-hmm. Than when I wrote it, but it wasn't my voice. Right. And after I said, no, I got to do this by myself. It's, I'm going to stand or fall on it. You know, it is what it is. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. But you got to hear me. I, I can't filter it through somebody else. Yeah, and I hear you. And, and now, of course, knowing your voice, that voice is the voice I hear as I read the book. And the voice of the kids. I mean, I try mm-hmm. in the book, as you know, having read it, to reflect what I learned from the kids and to reflect their voices. So that's why I have some of the letters they sent me. You remember the, in the middle of the book I talk about when I'm talking about Wonder Woman? Yes. I have the letters from the kids. When we had, talking about chutzpah, there are three, I'll give you three different chutzpah stories. One is, when I went, when I happened, it's another whole improbable story, I happened to be starting my television career in 1954 in St. Louis on the 8th Educational Station to go on there. And mm. I say Educational Station because there was no PBS at that time. It wasn't called Public Broadcasting. It was Educational Television in St. Louis. The Finder. Arrived, the Finder. And I arrived in St. Louis. I was going to do five 45-minute shows a week in a studio that was actually a girls' gymnasium that had been on the... On the uh, campus of Washington University and they turned it into a television studio by the simple expedient of putting plywood on the windows. <laughs> now, I'm there, I'm trying to get familiar with St. Louis and trying to figure out what I'm going to do with this show. And the, the great thing about those days, as you said in your introduction, is that you know it was all so bloody new. Nobody, could, nobody told me what I should do because nobody knew what I could do or what I should do even. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't know that. You know, I had a, I had a one person staff, I had no budget. I had a studio with lights and a couple of cameras, and I had a mandate to produce four, five 45 minute shows a week. That's what I started with. So, what do you do? How do you do this? Uh, now, I found out that the jazzy, biggest, most powerful American car up to that point, the Corvette, was in its second year of production and was assembled in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So, I called up found out the name of the guy who was in charge of that whole thing in St. Louis. I said, okay, here's the deal. 
I'm going to be starting a television show for children between the ages of 6 and 12. That will be on a station that's not yet on the air, an educational station, every afternoon from 4 to 4.45 in the afternoon. If you give me a Corvette for one year free, I'll feature it in the opening, and you'll see it every day, and it'll be a really good selling point for kids ages 6 to 12. Mm-hmm. Now, that's chutzpah. The definition of the word putz, he said yes. <laughs> so I drove around St. Louis for a year, almost a year in my snazzy, convertible, you know, powerful car. I should have had a license plate that said my other car is a second-hand Ford. <laughs> yeah, and I saw actually some clips uh you know, thanks to the 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 amazing thing called the internet, so much of the stuff that we thought we'd never see again is coming back. So there's actually some clips of you on the Finder, and I'm seeing you tooling around in that car with the Finder on the side of it. Yeah, and and it didn't work always all the way I should have because one time I was going out to go to some school in in St. Louis that asked me to come and talk, and so my wife and I were in the car, and and I was couldn't find it, and I stopped where there were some kids, and I beckoned them over, and I said, excuse me, can you tell me how to get to wherever I was going? And the kids stepped back for a moment, looked at the side of the car, looked at me, said, you're the finder, find it, <laughs> walked away. So it wasn't always an asset. Now, do you think any of those uh, little kids grew up and said, you know, i, I got to have a Corvette? Not sure whether, but it's still in production, so I guess it didn't hurt it. But no, <laughs> now the second evidence of chutzpah, is 1964. Mm-hmm. Okay, Wonder Woman was well established. And November of 1964, Senator Robert Kennedy has just become Senator-elect of New York State. And is one of the glamorous, you know, mythical, practically, characters in our world, following the death of his brother, for whom he had been Attorney General. Mm-hmm. And I get a call from the attorney from the bar of the senator-elect's office, and they said, "Look, the senator wants to do in New York what he's been doing for years in Washington, which is to go to the poor neighborhoods and Christmas time and have party, get food, and give out um, toys and prizes and stuff. Would you go with him?" Wow, what a, what an offer, huh? What a thing, what an approach. Yeah. Did I jump at it? No. With my usual clutch, I said, okay, here's the deal. If he'll come on the show and talk to the kids, I'll go with him. And they called back an hour later and said, you got it. And that began this extraordinary relationship with Bobby Kennedy that went on from, well, from that moment until he was killed. The last time I saw him was June of 67. And he was, I was going up in, in the plaza, the uh, UN Plaza uh, building where they have apartments. It's an apartment building, a very snazzy place, but by the fort, the UN area. And uh, he had a place there, he and Ethel. And um, I was going through the lobby on the way to an appointment somewhere else in the building. And there came this, you know, Bobby with his posse going through the lobby, and he stopped. And he said, hi, hi. I said, he was, he, and, and he said, so when am I going to be on your show again? I said, hey, anytime you want. 
He said, okay, when I come back from California, let's talk and we'll set it up. I said, who do I talk to? He said, the guy raised his hand. I said, okay, we got it. I said, goodbye to him, goodbye. Of course, he never came, when he came back from California, he was in a hearse. He was in a casket. Oh, God. The last time I saw Bobby, but I was at, got the telegram. I went to St. Patrick's for the ceremony. I was on the train going down to Washington with the body in the back and went over to Arlington for the burial. Uh, was, uh, I got to actually see him. He came to, to one of those giant workouts on a Saturday. Uh-huh. Did you have anything to do with that? No. He was able to do some things on his own. No, okay. I mean, I thought he may have had to call you for every <laughs> no, little thing. No, no, no. But we did, you know, I got down to his place, and I did a show for them down there, for kids down there. I got to know Ethel. And it was, it wasn't, I wasn't his best friend. I wasn't his confidant. Mm-hmm. But it, we had a very nice, trusting relationship. I remember the last time he was on one of my shows in 67, everybody expected, it was not Wonderama by that time, I believe. What was it? What? Well, you were doing. Hold on, I'm conflating. I'm conflating. He's 64. 60. He, he died in 68. Yeah, I know that. But, you were on. Wonder uh, well, it was 60. It was 68, probably. I had left. I had left Wonder Woman that time. Okay. And and I was doing the New Yorkers. Or I think that's what it was. I can't even remember anymore. But anyway, he came in, and he was that time, at that moment. The the word was he was going to declare to run against. Uh, mm. Johnson, and so when he came in this time, he had a cortege of reporters with him who were following his footsteps, of course, they didn't want to miss the moment when he said, yes, I'm going to run, and before we sat down for the camera, he beckoned me off to the corner, and he said, "Uh, don't ask me about running for president. Now, I knew why he said that. It was just a couple of days after what we call the Pueblo incident, when North Koreans had bombed. Mm -hmm. I captured uh, our spy ship just off the North Korean coast and towed it in, and we had bombed them. This was not a good time to be running against a sitting president. So I understood that. But the point is he trusted me, and I wasn't out to exploit our our relationship. I wasn't a newsman at all. Anyway, so that was the basis of our relationship. And I'd call him and say, I'm coming to town. And he said, well, come by the State Department and I'll take that to the airport, and then he'd say, you want to come over for dinner? I'd say, nah, I actually want to go back to Connecticut with my family, but he understood that. But it was that kind of a relationship that developed, and that's because he had the chutzpah to say, you know, if he'll come on the show. But I was always looking for ways to bring things to the kids, and, and, and they brought so much to me. They really did. Well, you know, so much of it, I mean, I can speak for the generation of kids in New York watching that because I remember these things like it just happened. I remember Kennedy being on the show. I remember the amazing Randy. Right, who, by the way, was supposed to have been in New York for the big event at the Paley Center, and he said yes, and then, and I said, now now nobody's going to pay your way up. Is that okay? He said, no, that's fine. Well, then, uh, obviously, the guy who's the head of his foundation got a wind of this and said, no, no, he's not coming if you don't pay. Mm. And so Randy did the most amazing act of his life. He made himself disappear. Uh, exactly. Very, very excellent. But I, I love, remember him I so love, well. I, but Randy taught me, I tell you what, I have, it's in the book too, but I'll repeat something. 
when when Randy, you know, Randy, the skinny kid from Canada, who would call me and say, "I'm they're going to deport me if I don't make some more money here. I have to make them no matter." So, Randy, any time, come on the show, and so I'd pay him enough to stay in the United States and not get deported. But he was a wonderful guest for the kids because he had that ability to not only be an amazing escape artist and magician, but he also had that Delphin charm that came with him. Um, and so I called him up one day. I said, yeah. I said, you know, my my oldest son's turning five. I was living in Connecticut, and I said, would you come up? do a little show for him and his kids, and then stay the weekend, you know, overnight, and come to the dinner party that night as we're going to have some really interesting guests. I think you'll enjoy it. And so, on. so I said, fine. So the Saturday morning, he was there, and my son Chris and four or five of his five-year-old buddies all gathered in the living room. And Randy started doing magic. And the dollar appeared, and the kids signed it, and then the dollar disappeared, and then a banana appeared. And then he peeled the banana back for the first time, apparently, and he broke it open, and inside was a dollar bill, and then they pulled it out, and it was the dollar they had just signed, and I was going, wow. And the kids were saying, uh, Mr. Fax, can we go out and play? Mr. Fax, can we go out and play? And I realized at that moment, I learned the lesson that for a five-year-old, everything is magic. You know, we clap for Tinkerbell. We believe in goblins and witches and and and, and all that stuff. So why wouldn't a dollar be? You know, it was not. There's no such thing as magic for a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. The whole world is magic. Randy didn't take it that way, by the way. All he knew was he was bombing. He went on, and the rivulets of sweat were pouring down his face. The veins were popping out. He was not going to leave bombing, even though these were five five-year-olds, and he wasn't getting paid. You know, all these years later, uh, do the kids remember that the same way? Which kids? Those Your five-year-old kids? Yeah. No, they don't remember that because they, they, you know, that was that was something that just crossed their path, and and they couldn't wait to get out and play. That was not a big deal for them. That was the point I'm making. Magic for a five-year-old, not a big mm-hmm. deal. Uh, you know, later on, eight, nine, ten, yeah, you can get. But I, but you know, it's interesting because my life, having been so incredibly uh, unpredictable and and I, I, people said well you know all these convergences and all these phone calls have changed my life and I said well what do you call it kiss do you call it faith do you call it God mm. no actually I don't put a label on it I just look at my life and say wow like magic you know I'm, a, I'm one of those magic is interesting that night that very night that he bombed out with the kids we had a very sophisticated crowd. There was a New York City councilman and his wife there, I remember, and a lady who was editor of an important newspaper in Rangoon, Burma, who was in visiting. And so, so it was a pretty sophisticated audience up there. And suddenly he's gone and running up and down. And I said, Randy, what are you doing? He said, I'm preparing something. Said, okay. And he did a mind reading. It's sort of a mind reading act. Somebody he told somebody, he was upstairs, and everybody was downstairs. He said, told somebody to go and pick out a book from the shelf and, and pick out any page and he said I'll tell you what paragraph you picked out and he was accurate now when he came down everybody said I know how you did it and they were all saying how he did it and he yeah. said no said, yeah yeah you, you won't tell us but yeah that's the way you did it. so the next morning I said so Randy were they right he said no I'll tell you how I did it and of course in all magic the better, the best acts are when are the simplest almost the simplest and I remember it was a simple thing he did and I, and I you know astonishingly effective I can't remember what it was, but it was a <laughs> But I found out another magic thing. 
magic divides people two ways. There are some people who feel threatened by it. Why? Getting a little, hold on, we're getting a little bit of interference. I'm sorry, what? Oh, there, there we go. Okay, cleared up. You were getting okay. some interference. Um, uh, it's Matt, it's Randy doing his stuff. I think so. Yeah, but anyway, uh, magic divides people into two categories. There are people who are threatened by the fact that someone is putting something over on him or her, and they they say no. I have to. I know how. They have to prove that they're smarter than the magician. And then there are the other people like me who lean back and say, astonish me. And mm. when they do, you say, wow. And so it's an interesting thing to perceive how people feel about that. Now, I, I have to ask you a couple of uh, re- checking my memory to see if I'm remembering things right from Wonderama, a couple of things that popped into my head. Did you, in fact, introduce Fluffernutter? I don't think so. I, I could swear that you. I remember Fluffernutter commercial. Yeah, and, and I've heard Fluffernutter, and that's was that a product or was that a combination? Well, fl- there was this thing called Marshmallow Fluff. Yeah. A product which I'm pretty sure was advertised on your show, well, was given away. Advertised. It may have been advertised. I had sometimes forty commercials in, yeah. in four hours. And by the way, when I went on vacation for two weeks a year, which is what I was able to get. Uh, they would not allow me to leave unless I laid down the intro to or all the commercials of the 40 commercials that would occur in each of the 242 shows. So that I had to sit down one afternoon and lay down 80 commercial intros, outros, wow. and commercials. That was a long, hard job to get off two weeks for. And one day we were doing this, and I was getting more and more tired, and I hit... Jujubes, <laughs> and for some reason, because I was so tired, I started laughing at the very word jujubes. It just sounded so stupid and funny, and I started laughing. And then I, I said, "But then the then the camera guy started going. We must have done twelve takes, and none of them worked because one of us or the others were breaking up every time I got to jujubes. And the only way I finished that one is I sent." Lock your I said, lock your cameras in place and get the hell out of the studio. And I staggered through and finished the jujubes. And by the way, when I was at the Paley Center, or somewhere in Connecticut maybe, I can't remember, I did so many of those book signings, one of my guy fans who somehow knew this story Arrived with a box of Juju Beats, and I still have them. Here. I think that was uh, at the West at the at the uh, Stanford event that I was at. Stanford event, right? I, and, yeah, and, and that's why that was that was there. But I, I, I now is anybody calling in? Because I would love to get questions. I do, in fact, have a caller calling in from uh, Connecticut. Who, I bet you I know who that is. I bet you I know who it is too. But let's bring this man on the line. I'm assuming it's a man, and if it's not, I'm so sorry, sir. Hello, caller. Right. How are you, Andrew? How are you, Sonny? It's Randy Bucknoff. Of course you? it's Randy Bucknoff. We both do that. And, <laughs> and I could even answer where the jujubes came from. It was from at the Paley Center. And uh, a fan, John Rayo, who I happen to know. Oh, John to Rayo, you. who is a meteorologist. Yes. And he does a program on, uh, does uh, somewhere up the Hudson, he does some weather stuff on television and also does some stuff for the New York Times. How do I know this? Because he got a hold of me knowing I was going to be doing this, and he started uh, uh, you know, um, emailing with me, 
and gave me this whole story and guaranteed me what the weather would be when I was in New York. So I had my own personal meteorological consultant. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, I did have a question for you, Sonny. Sure. For, for, first, of all, I, first of all, I just want to say that I finished the book, and I think everybody should read it. It's a fascinating read, really wonderful story. And, and I was riveted by your stories about World War II. And the whole book is wonderful. So everyone who's listening, please read this book. Thank you. It's fascinating. By the way, wonderful. Randy, the reason I met Randy is because he has a Wonderama website that I didn't even know about it and sort of stumbled on <laughs> And over the period of time, I realized this was a valuable asset if I wanted to get any word out about anything I was doing. So Randy has been a loyal and wonderful supporter of mine, and then we've had, finally had lunch together in New York, and have become now buddies. So Randy is my Randy is my outlier in Connecticut. Well, thank you, Sonny. I appreciate that. Um, the question I had for you is, you know, there's people like John Rayo, there's people like me, there's people like Andrew here. How do you account for that long-term connection between you and your kids from Wonderama? Yeah, good question. Good question, because when I was doing the show, I knew it was popular, and I knew that, the, you know, we had a nice relationship and a trusting relationship, and I knew the ratings were high. Those were all things I knew while I was doing the show. It wasn't until about two or three decades later when emails started to arrive from people who found that I was still around and found my email saying, oh, my God, it's you, and I can't tell you how much, that I began to realize that we did something different than most shows, that this was something that had stayed with the kids in a very vivid and very compelling way. And that's that's what, that, it wasn't until many years later, decades later, that I began to realize, and realize now to this very day, 40, 50 years later, how extraordinarily different this was. And I mark it up to the fact that I had no talent. Let me let me go back and tell you why that, that is. Um, there were four, three other great performers doing kids shows on Channel 5 when I was doing Wonderama. Sufi Sales, Sandy Becker, and Chuck McCann. Each of them individually a wonderful performer and very talented and they worked hard at their craft you know they did puppets and they and they did that props and they wrote scripts and they threw pies and they did all that stuff and the kids adored them and properly so i had four hours on the weekend and i had you know three cameras in the studio and four hours to fill and i, I had no production budget and no talent at least no performing talent so on my show, the only asset I had were the kids. The kids on the other shows were the audience. On my show, they were the show. And it was this unique sort of bond of trust that was built up over the years, an intimacy, a relationship that was very, very direct and personal for the kids and for me. That 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 made it different. I think that was why the thumbprint I left on malleable minds in those days is still there. And in, being being remembered is flattering, but being remembered with a sense of vividness and sort of that umbilical cord between us still exists is really. I have seen many distinguished men and women who, upon seeing me and recognizing me in their forties and fifties and sixties, have regressed to 10 years old immediately. 
I was on your show, and I, 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 and I, and I, and I, and the spelling bee, oh, and I had a joke, and I, and the word I missed in the spell, and they would remember the word they missed. They remember the joke they told. They remember the hmm and this. And, I mean, and, and they were suddenly, they were suddenly ten years old again. It just power like that, and it happened with the editor of the New York, the New Yorker, when I met him. I mean, it was just amazing. And the Billy Crystal watched, and 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 and. The producer, uh, uh, the Weinstein brothers, Washington Harvey, who was one of my fans, and and of course Whoopi Goldberg, who because of that came and was hosted the show at the Paley Center, just saying I've always I just want, I always wanted to be on one on, on Simon Says and I'm Simon Go, but it was like we it's like we always knew each other even though I hadn't met her but once forty years ago. You know, it's it's funny you you know you you talk about the. Uh, kind of connection you have, and I, you know, one of the things that, are, that sticks out for me very, very vividly was kind of in a way like the death of innocence for me was your last show on Wonderama when you introduced the next guy. I can actually remember that so vividly, and you, and you, you know, you're in good hands. I think it was something to that effect that you said. And uh, well, I, I, I lasted about a week or two with uh, him, and I, I, I could never uh, watch it. I, it was, it it was, was too sweet. Well, but, but it was no bite. Because, because it became what the other shows were. It became a performer, mm-hmm. and the kids were the background making a lot of noise and cheering. Right. So that was a lot different than the show I had done. Well, you kind of spoiled it for me, well, <laughs> what I I'm trying to say. Because I couldn't do it. I mean, I had before, and... But here's what the takeaway for me. I learned so much about kids. kids. I learned about what a wonderful internal. I'm having a little uh, breakdown here on the on the on the sound. Okay. But there you are. Yeah, it's gonna happen. Uh, when I'm sorry, well, I'm three thousand miles away. I just I know, so I break down once in a while. <laughs> uh, but the the um, the the. Um, the relationship was 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 extraordinary, and still is. And I get these residuals, which are priceless, of of people like you and others, and 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 you know, just just who 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 tell me, and in Connecticut and Westport and 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 Stanford, and and wherever in New Jersey, and um, every person who was there to buy a book and sign it and ask me to sign it, had an anecdote, a connective, some aspect of his life or her life that connected. It was so fascinating to me to meet these people one at a time and just have a few seconds, at least a couple of minutes to spend with him or her Mm -hmm. so that I I sensed where the connection was with each other. I do this on the email a lot, but this was personal. And I found that so wondrous and so fulfilling. I don't care, you know, the books sell, they sell. But this exposure to meeting my kids who are, <laughs> you know, how you, you know how old you are, um, is, is quite extraordinary. And, and, and remarkable. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? It was so extraordinary and remarkable. Ah, gosh. You know, speaking of you know, your kids, uh, you know, Wonder Armor is not the only children's show you did. And I actually found last night, I've been reading and watching things and all, all sorts of things, I actually found an entire episode of Let's Take a Trip. Uh, was the one, which was, which was it? 
This was with the uh, Greenwich House pottery. Oh, really? And uh, you uh, you may be uh, amazed to discover that Greenwich House pottery, more than 100 years of helping individuals lead more fulfilling lives, are still around. I had forgotten totally we had done that. We did three uh, three years of this, and we went to a different... See, this is the first regularly scheduled remote live show on CBS. It was 1955 to 58. And in those days when you did a remote show, we didn't have remote equipment. There were no remote handheld cameras. There were no lightweight equipment, anything like that. We trundled the cameras out of the studio on their tripod wheels with the four lenses, big heavy mothers. And we brought them in trucks out to wherever we were going, whether it was a sports stadium or a manufacturing line or a pottery or whatever, Truman Library with Harry Truman, and Ebbets Field with the Boys of Summer. And I had two kids with me, Bud and Ginger. And live television. I mean, at noon on Sunday, we were on CBS Live, and it took forever to get things set up. And, so, and on every show, something happened. I guarantee you, live television in those days, pretty primitive. And we were not in a studio where it was safe, so it was out there. And on every show, something would <clears throat> go wrong. So you had to, uh, you had to. Now, for instance, we were doing a show on Staten Island with the Coast Guard. They had a Coast Guard cutter station out there. We always, yeah, but, and so the Coast Guard itself, it's about 1956, was so excited because everybody was doing shows about the Air Force, the Army, the Navy. Nobody ever did anything about the Coast Guard, so they were extremely delighted and excited. And all across the country at that hour, the general, the admirals were all dressed in their uniforms, I'm sure, standing at attention. Everybody was proud. Every base was on alert. And now the show goes on out there in Staten Island at this end of the world, the little place where the Coast Guard station was. Now, in every time you did a live show, you had an A and B resolution for the end. If you were on time, you went through the A ending. If you were running, uh, if you needed padding, you had a B ending. So as I was going past a camera late in the show, the guy said, the B ending is okay. The A ending was we were going to all, the kids and I were going to go off the gangplank onto the Coast Guard cutter say, after saying goodbye and sail into the harbor. They would roll the credits over our ship sailing off. B1 is they put the kids on there, and I was going to stay behind and pad. And so B ending, I, I, I sent the kids off with their host up the gangplank and watched the ship sail into the harbor. Only the captain was so excited about being on CBS television, he forgot to pull up the gangplank. So what you saw and heard was this <laughs> as the gangplank splintered and the ship sailed into the harbor. Mm. All over America, I sensed Admiral slinking under their <laughs> desks. But that left me on the edge of the pier in Staten Island, alone. And I figured I had a pad. They said, you know, pad. So I figured, okay, you have to let air in, maybe 30 seconds, and slow down what you're saying, put in a few extra words, which I did. Mm -hmm. Just as about the time I was ending the padding, the stage manager held up his fingers, three fingers, meaning... I had three minutes to fill. Are you are you still there, guys? Mm-hmm. Okay. And now, here I am at the end of a pier, alone, with three minutes of air time to fill. 
that is a long time when you're not prepared to do it and you have no assets, nothing to turn to, nothing to... Well, it was after two and a half minutes, I just threw it back and thought to myself, run a slow crawl of credits. I'm, I'm exhausted. So those were that was, that, some of the perils of doing live television. Yeah, I in the book you've alluded to in a in a few places uh you know you're talking about the the these young kids uh uh, uh Pud and Pud Ginger Ginger and you've alluded to the idea that years later there was still she's still holding some stuff around things that happened so does this mean you're still in touch with them I am and Ginger Ginger called I got a I think it was uh uh, TV Guide did an article maybe eight or nine years ago in which I mentioned uh, Pud Ginger and me and, and the show. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. And they called me later and said, uh, uh, somebody's trying to reach you uh, and asked us if we could put them in touch with you. Is that all right? And I said, yeah, sure. Well, it turned out it was Ginger, who was now up in Wenatchee, Washington, married, and she was a psychotherapist. Well, I knew she was a therapist. That I didn't know. She had graduated from Tulane. Mm-hmm. Somehow I knew that. But I've not heard from her and not been in touch with her since she left the show at 11 and a half years old. And now it was a lot, a lot of decades later, and she said, I had to find you. My husband and I want to come down and visit. I said, oh, Ginger, you know, in my mind, <laughs> you're still that nine and a half year old girl with pigtails. I can do the arithmetic. I know how old you are. I'm not sure if I can handle this. But she did come down with David, and we did have a grand time, and she's come back into my life. I actually think her parents died early, and I really think she, because we had spent every weekend together for two and a half years, that maybe I was her father figure, you know, and she wanted to reconnect. But for whatever reason, I was delighted to have her back in life, and she was there in New York with me at the Paley Center, and we were interviewed totally together for one of the shows, so... It was nice having her back in my life. Pud is totally gone. And now, later on, though, I, we had Joan and Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And for the last year of the show, I had Joan and Jimmy, two two other delightful young people. Jimmy Walsh, James Walsh, then about 10 years ago got in touch with me. He said, I, I'm in Wall Street, and I'm doing very, very well. I have kids in college, and can we have lunch? I said, sure. So the next time I was in New York, we got together, and we had lunch. He brought one of his daughters with him. We had a perfectly lovely time, and then toward the end of the lunch, he looked at me and said, was I good? Mm. Now, isn't that interesting? Here's a man who went on and had a very successful life, raised his... It was still gnawing at him about whether he was good way back there when he was nine or ten. And I said, sure, you were wonderful. It's so, like that uh, moment but, but in the... Uh, that assurance. I mean, remember the movie uh, A Field of Dreams? I'm, I'm, you're, you're getting very... Um, quiet back there. I can hardly hear you. Can you hear me now? Uh, well, keep going. Okay, I'll try to speak louder. Um, you remember the movie Field of Dreams? Yep. And there was a moment where uh, Burt Lancaster has made the choice to be Doc. You know, He walks over the line and he's no longer that ball player. He's back to being Doc, the beloved doctor who saves the girl. Mm. But they, all the players say to him, you were good. He had, he needed to get that acknowledgement. He needed to get that, sure. All those years later. And that's what I get from my kids today, you know. And I get it from other sources, too. I mean, we've done uh, so many other shows down through the years. And I, and I treasure the fact that I was able to work with the best 
composers of theater in a series I did in the 80s called The Songwriters. And I worked with Alex Lerner, and I worked with Kander and Epp and Charlie Strauss and, and Yip Harbor. I mean, just the best of the best. And I knew Dick Rogers, Richard Rogers, later in his life, and we became friends. These were these were such monumentally talented individuals, and so important in our in our culture. And I learned so much from them, and I appreciated so much being able to get to know them. And working with Julie Harris, arguably the best American actress at the time, doing a film with her. And, and co-hosting with Colleen Dewhurst and Ruby Dee and things like that. I mean, for the kid from Brooklyn, this kid <clears throat> from Brooklyn, who was such a wimp, to have had this kind of remarkable career to become chairman of the board of the Television Academy and so on, that's why I look back and say, wow. Now you you you, you refer to yourself as a wimp, a guy you couldn't you weren't even a two sewer uh, uh, player. I no, recall. no, I couldn't hit two sewers. I couldn't even hit one sewer. Could you hit? How about today? Well, maybe not today, but in your well, prime I mean, of physicality. You know, it's funny. In, in later years in Connecticut, a whole bunch of the kids who grew up in New York, Brooklyn decided to recreate stickball for a day, and we picked out a place and we cut out what looked like sewer tops, put them in the field, spaced them the way you would sewers. And we put out, we'd park the cars where first and third base would be because that's what we used to use. Okay, the tail fin of the Buick was first base and the, and the, and the, and the defender of the Chrysler over there was, was third base and the sewer was second base. We rigged it all up in a field in Connecticut. Our wives came. They had no idea what was going on. And we rigged up the game and we got the stick for stickball. We got a spalding rubber ball again. And we're in our 40s, mm or 30s, whatever it was, we recreated stickball in, in you know, in, in suburban Connecticut. Wow. And I hit the ball when I ran. I got a double, and I thought, I'm redeemed. <laughs> yeah, now, people who are not from New York, and they're going, what on earth are you talking about? But anybody who grew up in the, in the city part of New York... Brooklyn, uh, uh, even in I grew up in Bayside, but my parents were from Brighton Beach. We knew about stickball. We knew about sewers. That was a measurement of, of a of a boy. There were manhole covers are spaced apart at certain lengths that ran down the length of the street, mm -hmm. and we measured we measured how far you could hit by the length. Of, you could hit one sewer, two sewers, you know, and so mm -hmm. on. But we, I was a street kid. I was raised on the streets of New York. And here's another thing that is, is a, a, an interesting perception in writing the book. Um, we did not have planned activities. We did not have planned play dates. We did not have planned sleepovers. We did not have people supervising our uh, with rules, that, like Little League games and other activities that were managed and, and, and had coaches who were dads or whatever, and teams and uniform. Nah, we tumbled out of our houses and, and we played and we sort of ran our own lives. We would play Ring Alivio or two, three feet off the ice or mm -hmm. stickball or any of the games we had, and we would, uh, we would referee ourselves. And no, you know, uh, and if there was an argument, you'd do a do-over, and there were arguments all the time. But somehow we learned how to 
deal with this, how to make up the rules, how to abide by the rules, how to judge ourselves, how to organize. We had choose-up teams. Or was the kid picked last? Because nobody wanted me on that team. But I was always picked. The point is I mm-hmm. was never left out. We were all in there, and we all did our best. But we all accepted each other. Okay, you played up to your limits, and that was it. And if, and when it came to be, uh, you know, uh, how, how do you, when there's a call that we disagreed on, somehow we worked it out. The kids today are so buffeted from that. Mm-hmm. And they are given, I think, self-esteem. I sort of identify with the tiger mom lady who wrote the book about this. I do think we tend to give our kids today self-esteem before they earn it. So that if you're, even if you're on a losing team, you get prizes. Right. And I realized, writing about that, I realized, oh, my God, on my, on my show, we did it the right way because our mothers would come to me when this kid had been on the show, and said, you're cruel. I said, really? Why am I cruel? My kid waited all these years to get on your show, and he gets to tell you a joke, and you knew the answer, you knew the tagline, and he gets to sit down. He didn't get a prize. I said, yes, and? Hmm. Well, he should have gotten something. I said, no. You see, if I started condescending to the kids and pretending that I don't know it, uh, they would sniff that out in, in... five seconds, and I would start to lose all the trust I had built up all the years. Because kids don't have a problem with this as long as they understand what the rules are of the That's game. That's right. If you administer the rules properly and fairly, they have no problem with that. They understand the game. Okay, play Simon Says, you move, you sit down. Okay, they, they, they got that. And I said, you know, I they trust me because they know I'm not going to pretend to be sweet and say, oh, I didn't know that, and give him a prize. No. I, you know, because what's the worst thing a kid can say? That's not fair. Mm. You know, if you do it fairly and they understand what the rules are, they have no problem with that. That's right. Now, I have, a, a, I have another caller who uh, has his hand raised. Okay, I'm going to move to another room hoping that I can hear you better, but go ahead. Keep going. Okay, great. Okay, because I yeah it must be a, a phone problem on both our ends here, so uh, be, be, I'm going to bring a okay, another... you're, you're loud again. So oh, I'm good. Uh, we're going to bring another caller on the line, and then after that, I, I definitely really want to talk to you about uh, World War II because it's okay. uh, such so fascinating. Uh, area four oh seven, you are on the air. Th- thanks, Andy. Uh, how are you doing, Sonny? I'm fine. I'm here. I'm alive. Yeah, it's me, Kevin Butler. Oh, Kevin Butler from Western Connecticut. No, actually from New York, but I now live in Florida. Well, I I, I know, but originally. Yeah. Yeah, I um, want to ask you about, uh, I know you did a lot of personal appearances during the years you did Wonderama. I'd just like to ask you, if you, you may not remember this, but there was a personal appearance you and the other kids' TV host in New York used to do at a place called Madison Square Garden back in April of 1965 called The Fun Rally. Do you recall that? I recall having played basketball there. Was that what you're talking about? No, the fun rally was the kids' TV host, you, Sandy Becker, Joe Bolton, Jack McCarthy, Soupy Sales, Chuck McCann, Beachcomber Bill, Claude Kirshner, etc. You all performed or did a personal appearance at Madison Square Garden, the fun rally, for the benefit of emotionally disabled children. This was back in April 1965. Do you recall that? I do not. Oh. Because I knew... Were, was, you, were you there? I wanted to be, but my... 
parents, I hate to say this, but they, they did not want to pay for the tickets. They said, we are you, Kevin, I'm telling you now, you're not going to go see Sonny Fox. I hate him. Don't ever mention my dad. I hate to say it, but he was the meanest bastard who ever <laughs> He would never let me go see any. The only kids show hosts I ever saw in person were Bill Britton and Doris Faye. That was where you played Princess Ticklefair. Oh, that the was before. That was a show I took over from. That, uh, yeah, I know. And uh, you the, did the, big, that. The, big, the big deal on that show was the turtle race, right? That's right. Then Bill was not Bozo. He, he did a character called Three Gun Willie the Kid. It was so bad they said, don't do it anymore. So just played him so. But Miss Faye did Princess Ticklefeather, the Princess Indian Ventriloquist. Which is blonde, hard girlfriend, I guess, with long blonde. And play, she played Prince. I mean, this was the nadir of children's show. And they called me and they said, we want you to class this up. Would you do this? You know, we need an intelligence show. So that's why they hired me. Uh, but yes, Bill Britton. Um, I sat in one day while they were doing the show to see what this thing was, and I—that's <laughs> the only time I think I ever saw it. Yeah, well, I remember uh, I saw them at the Laconia Theater in the Bronx in 1960 or 61. Then, a few years later, April of 1965, my mother, my aunts, my cousins, Adam and Keith, and I went to see Chuck McCann, the Paul Ashley puppet at the Jamaica Jewish Center. I had a ball, but my mother. Oh. I hate to say this, when the show was over, Chuck said, we're going to turn the stage around, you can come up and get an autograph. But my mother said, no, we're going home now. And I could have killed oh. her because I missed a chance to meet Chuck then, but I did meet him years later. Did you get... had mean parents. You really yeah. had mean parents. Yeah, uh, they... Chuck, is, Chuck is wonderful. I love having him on my Oh, yeah, he, he is a wonderful man, but you got to remember, my parents didn't understand that. Look, Kevin, did you get to see Chuck recently when he uh, came to New Jersey? Uh, uh, no, unfortunately, it, I couldn't afford to go back to New Jersey to, to uh, see him. I wish I could have. I would have even loved to see you, Sonny, either in Connecticut, New Jersey, or New York at the Paley Center. But unfortunately, the recession as it is now, there was no way I could do that. Uh, I'm going to try and get enough money together to buy your book because I really want to read your book. Well, it's only nine ninety-five, I think, on Amazon. It's really not too hard to get. I, I hope that you can you can conjure that up. Um, um but, you know, if you can't email me, I'll send you a copy. Well, I'll try to email you. If not, I'll contact you through um, Randy Bucknoff. Okay. Also, I've been trying to mention this to you, but I haven't been able to say I have dubs for you of uh, your records you did, uh, Inside Kids with Sonny Fox and his friends on Peter oh, Pan wow. Records. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, great. and also you tell the story of Tubby the Tube on Simon Says Records and the original song, Let's Take a Trip. I have that. I Plus your theme song from uh, Hi Time, which from was written Just by. By the way, I found out many years later, I was at a party with the guy who was the producer of uh, Red October. What was that movie? That great movie about the Russian submarine? A uh, Hunt, Hunt for Red, Red October. October. Hunt for Red October. He was the producer of it. Her name escapes me now. Um, and and we, he said he sat down and he says, hey, "Come over to the piano," and he started playing. Let's take it. Let's take a trip. And I said, how do you know that song? He said, who wrote it? I said, Bob, uh, Bob the composer, who wrote the lyrics. Turned out he did. So that was a, that was an amazing mm. moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, before I, I just want to tell you also, my, a friend of mine has the original audio air check of your special, Cowboy and the Tiger, and a Wonderama show you did with the great Boris Karloff, and he'd like to send them to you. Oh, my God. You wow. Are, you know, I tell you what. Tell me what it costs you to make the dubs, and I'll send you the money for it. 
Well, I already have the dubs made of the other things, but not the audio cassettes of. Uh, All right, anything that you have, anything you have that you're going to spend any money, including postage. You know, I don't. I, but but tell me, you know, send me, and I'll, I'll be glad to pay for these things because it's unfair for you to have to pay for them when you're down and out for the moment. So uh, you won't. Well, I don't have the dubs of uh, Cowboy and the Tiger. No, and, Cowboy uh, and Tiger. I have I have the videos of that, so I'm I'm fine on that one. That was a lovely musical that I did, by the way, in 1963. Mm. I started doing it earlier. I did it uh, earlier, and I performed it in Paramus, New Jersey, for a while for 18 performances. And then a guy who was a, one of my sponsors from an ad agency fell in love with it, and then he decided he wanted to get it done. He got the sponsors together, and it became an ABC special. And ironically, was the on the day that the networks resumed programming after they had dealt with Kennedy's death and funeral, JFK's death and funeral. So um, it was on the day, four days after the assassination. Mm-hmm. And it was termed the perfect show to have on after all of that storm and drang, and and called a minor It's a lovely, lovely, lovely musical, and it's one of the prizes I have. And by the way, it it stars Jack Guilford along with some others. And Jack, yeah, Guilford the, yeah, been, I, I have never saw it, but I know Guilford did, and I met him before he died. And also starred. Paul O'Keefe who went on to do the Patty Duke show. Right, and Paul was there too. And and Jack had ne- had been back blacklisted by the you know the House on American Affairs Committee and therefore was blacklisted for ten years. And it was just finished. It was just on for the first time doing his Cracker Jack commercials. And I wanted him to star in the show. And ABC said no. He's still under a perjury indictment uh, for not naming names, etc., etc. And get somebody else. I and I was so pissed at that. I said, I am not, there is nobody else. You either clear Jack Guilford or there is no special. And I don't know what happened in the intervening times, but my agent called about three days and said, okay, they've cleared him. So the first time for 10 years that Guilford was on television, you, I said to them, he's on doing the Cracker Jack commercial. What are you doing? Ah, but we don't use his name. I said, so you're telling me if you do those two words, Jack Guilford, the Republic is going to crumble. So I got that really pissed me off, and I and so I broke the blacklist for Jack on that show. But it was they incidental to doing a really good show. I was very proud of that one. But thank well, you anyway for mentioning it. I yeah, would love I, to see that. I yeah, uh, uh, I just also want to mention my friend uh, Phil Grice has that show, and also a rare interview you did on Wonder Woman with Boris Karloff. He would like to send the Karloff. I have no remembrance of that either. Boris Karloff really in the flesh. Yeah, he was on your version of Wonderama. And, uh, you know, I, well, you know, after eight and a half years, and after all, I, I have lived, <laughs> you're talking to somebody who has lived one-third of the history of this country. Now, think of that. That's That either means we have a very young country or I'm a very old person. I believe both are both are correct. Yeah, I know that you can't remember all the guests, but you had so many wonderful guests. You also had on Chuck McCann, Soupy no, Sales. I, Chuck, I, Chuck, I, no, I never had Soupy Sales on as a guest. Soupy Sales did the show, I believe, once when I was on vacation. I think. I know Sandy did. Did you well, ever I, have a, a singer named Peter Lemongello on? I don't think so, but that may not be true. I don't know. I, not that I re- Let me put it this way. Not that I Because I could swear you did. Okay, swear away. I used that as my, the basis of becoming his Facebook friend. Oh. Well, I remember you from Wonder Woman. He didn't say no? Lemon Jello if he was on. No, you know. yeah, well, I remember, he didn't deny it. Yeah, I remember uh, uh, Soupy was on your show a couple of times. Jimmy Nelson, the ventriloquist. who Jimmy Nelson. Ghost. I'm not sure I ever had Soupy on. I had Chuck on. Chuck I loved. 
Chuck was so funny and did his little sweaty puppeteer where the puppet head came off and he didn't know it and his fingers were moving and he still was doing the work. You know, it was, he could do those sweaty, overstuffed, earnest performers so well. He came in once and the deal was I was introducing him as the man who had spent his life making a replica of the Empire State Building out of toothpicks. And he came with a big black box, which this presumably was. And he kept saying, "Now, don't, don't, don't touch this. Don't, don't wave your hand. Don't, you know, my whole life, you know." And he was earnest and puffing, and 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 and, and so you never saw anything. But at one point, my arm swung around, and you heard this huge crash. And the next thing you saw, the look on Chuck's face as he looked down. And we had bought every toothpick in New York. <laughs> And when you looked down, you saw this pile of toothpicks, which had presumably been, a moment ago, the Empire State Building <laughs> and life. The look on Chuck's face as he stared at this just sent me into paroxysms of laughter. I had to just duck out of sight because I could not keep it straight. But he kept his, he was in character the entire time. Now, just that sight gag alone was worth all Sonny, this is oh, actually sorry. proof of what you talk about in your book about how kids growing up listening to the radio had to make it up in their head. I never saw that, but I'm just I'm laughing at my imagination of it. Yeah. And yeah, I remember you're absolutely right. That's the way it was with radio and when I, you know, when I did Candid Microphone with Alan Fun, um years later they did the same gags on Candid Camera. And as fun as they were on Candid Camera, I always felt that they were funnier on Candid Microphone because we made up our own pictures. That's true. Uh, I remember one other bit that Chuck did on your show, along with Paul Ashley, God bless him, they did the uh, the general something, the admiral something. They played two military officers watching a parade go by, and oh, right. all this mud got dumped on them. Right. And presumably... The the the, uh, the the cavalry horses were digging up the clumps of mud and were just getting all over his beside his written mm. uniform in his face, and it was oh my god that was funny and he just stood there at attention the entire way with his dignity intact as he became covered with mud it's such a simple concept but so well done that's the thing that he did so brilliantly. Yeah, there were so many wonderful. There was this Chuck McCann, there was Paul Ash, Jimmy Nelson, uh, Paul Winchell was on your show. Mm. Paul Winchell and I did a Christmas special, as I remember. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, that I know you also had him on one of your Thanksgiving Day specials. There's so many wonderful memories. I mean, when you said that you did a show that treated children with respect and intelligence and true wit and humor, I was part of that from the time you started in January '59 right up until. You left the show in 1967, and as talented as Bob McAllister was, you were the best of all the hosts of Wonderama. I mean, everybody, Sandy Becker, Herb Sheldon, Bill Britton, you, Bob, but you were the best, and I don't think anyone will ever top what you did on that program. Well, they were, but, you know, they were all brilliant in their own ways. It's just We were different because I didn't have the talent to be better. Yeah, and, and you may not have been a performer, but in terms of being a personality and a man who really knew how to deal with kids, from the point of view of uh, the host, the producer, yeah, and, the communicator. And, and Sandy and Soupy especially didn't figure out why I, why it worked. I don't think they think they couldn't figure Apparently, according as far as they were concerned, I did nothing. <laughs> I didn't do anything. 
Why, why was it working? They worked so hard at what they did and, it, and took such pains to do it. And I, Sandy said, yo, you can wake up in the middle of the night and do your show. It just couldn't figure it out. That's true. Um, yet um, I still watch the show when you did it. I, I miss that kind of TV because there's no one who could do what you did. Even talking with, even someone like Ms. Linda Ellerby did Nick News on Nickelodeon. I don't think she could do a talk, an interview, or a seminar thing on television with kids the way you could. Well, you're very sweet to say that. Actually, one of the great gifts I had was time, and I could take time to let the silences hang in the air when I talked with the kids. We don't do that anymore. We suck the air out from between the words now in case that somebody, if there's a pause, somebody will go click and you're gone. And so we don't even give ourselves a chance to breathe, much less listen. And that's a loss, I think. That's a really loss. And I would urge any parent or grandparent who's watching, or I'm sorry, listening tonight, to remember this, there's a treasure in every child. And if you take the time to sort of listen, uh, maybe you'll hear it. And, and it is such a, uh, a special gift that they have of their interior lives. And, 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 and if, you don't, if you don't listen, uh, then you, you're, never, you're never gonna listen. You're never you're gonna miss it. So uh, I would say, you know, if you have time to do that, do because the the art of listening seems to have disappeared from our lives. That's true, especially with today's interviewers, and it's kind of sad because, and I, it's hard for me to do it when I interview people as a writer and researcher. But you're right. We should let the silences hang and learn to listen to our subjects when we talk with them as interviewers so we can get more out of them. Oh, well, you're very kind. You've done that tonight. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, by the way, speaking of uh, Paul Winchell, what's the really cool other thing about him? What's the real cool other thing about Paul Winchell? He was an inventor. I don't know what. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he was uh, on the team that invented the Jarvik artificial heart. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. was just like, really? That's one of those like things. When I heard that, I was just astonished yep. as all yep. as anything you can imagine. Yeah, you know, and, and and we all had other lives too. You know, we all were not just invented to get on the air for those few hours every day. So every every one of us had had lives aside from that. And and I you know I went on to do other things. And but I must say, in all the things I've done, movies I've done with Julie Harris, and the things I've done with the Music Man, the, the Golden Age of Television series being chairman of the Academy, going on to deal with, uh, in the last couple of decades, how to use the power of storytelling to change social and health outcomes around the world in Africa and China and so on, being a consultant for the State Department, public diplomacy people, putting with a, a serial drama in Egypt. All of that was has been wonderful and very important. I think the most satisfying time in my entire life with the eight and a half years I spent on Wonderama. Yes, and I was a part of it. Uh, I just wish that my parents weren't so cruel that I, I would have given anything to get a, a ticket to that show. Just to I, I, I'm sure they're not still alive, right? Oh, no. My, my mother passed away from cancer in 1987. My dad died two years later of a heart attack. These days, the man who's become a, sort of a father figure to me is Chuck. Ah, oh, that's good. Well, so, so uh, you know, I hope this makes up a little bit for uh, that that loss for you, Kevin. But you know, what, one of the things I get to tell—I've been telling people all week—I never got to be on Wonderama with Sonny Fox, but Sonny Fox gets to be on Coach's Corner with Andrew Poritz. That's true. Uh, 
I would have given anything to even see you in person. I, I didn't see you at Expo 67, even though I was there with my family. Oh. Yeah, we did a special on our special up there with the Canadian people. Yeah, it was it was really great fun. I brought all my kids up there. We had a great time up there. Yeah, but the, if nothing else, I did see you twice. First at the uh, when it was still the Museum of TV, not the Paley Center back in 1994 when they had that seminar honoring kids TV. Was it Sandy kids. Becker and Chuck? No, no, Sandy wasn't. It was you, Chuck McCann, Soupy Sales, Zachary, and J- Captain Jack McCarthy in his last public bit. And ironically, sitting next to me were. Soupy's second puppeteer, Frank Nastasi, and my dear friend Bill Britton. We were there. The second oh, you time knew was Bill Britton. The, par, par, pardon me. You knew Britton. Yeah, Bill Britton was there too. Huh? Yes, it's the truth. Uh, and then a few years years later, in 2006, I saw you at the uh, Friends of Old Time Radio. I still have the photo I had taken with you. Oh yeah, with the something of that one, in New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, Kevin, I wanna, uh, I'm going to move on to this next. Me, did you hand me the DVD of the New Yorkers? No, I, I didn't have that. I wish I could have Somebody given you Somebody did, and I, there's a wonderful story that goes with it. I had never, I didn't even know what I was getting. I just, I, mean, I think that thing hang, hung around for a couple of three years before I said, I wonder what this is that they gave me. I had never seen me on the New Yorkers, which was the show I did. The reason I left Wonderama is because Channel 5 wanted to do this two-and-a-half-hour daily show, and uh, they wanted me to host it. And um, But they said, you have to stop doing Wonderama. And I said, oh, I, you know, why do I have to stop doing it? And I said, well, we want to make you into an adult talent. I said, well, look, I got a, I got four kids, a wife, and a, a mortgage. Maybe let's, let's try it both for 13 weeks, letting me do both. Uh, you may hate me. I may not be good. Well, now they insisted, so I thought, okay, I gotta, I gotta make a decision. I finally decided, okay, I'll take a new challenge. I'll walk through the door. Any rate, um, so that's why I, I, I did the New Yorkers. What was the point of my story? <laughs> You're talking about getting, getting the, uh, seeing the New Yorkers for the first time. Uh yeah. So then we were on live every day for two and a half, and I never got to see the show because you know it was live. And then somebody handed me this this DVD at this thing in New Jersey, and when I got home, I didn't see it for about two years. I put it on, and by God, it was me at the New Yorkers, and the first guest is Isaac Stern. Now, if you had asked me, did I know Isaac Stern? I said never met him. I admired him, but never met him. <laughs> There he is playing a little thing with his pianist, and then coming out. We talked for 20 minutes. Now he goes back down to do a, a, a final piece before we say goodbye to him, and the word comes back to me uh, and my co-host, Penelope Coker, saying uh, they're looking for someone to turn the pages for the pianist. I saw that. I say, okay, well, oh, oh, Carl's going to do it. Well, my next guest was Carl Reiner. Now, I, did I know Carl was on the show? No, I, every minute of that show I watched was new to me. I had no memory of any of it. It was all perfectly new to me all these decades later. Carl gets finished with turning the pages, comes on and says, that's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> now, Dissolve, about a year, two years ago, I reconnect with Carl at an event. And now I say, Carl, I got something I think you'd be interested in seeing. Well, Carl and I sit in his living room to watch this. 
Carl has no memory of it. Gets so excited by this whole thing, makes five copies for me, and says, "I got to show this to all my children." <laughs> and then tells me the whole story about why the violin is so important to him and his family. And, so on. and Carl and I, I remember we're going to have lunch in another week. Carl and I have become lunch buddies. Yeah, well, I didn't give you that, but I do recall giving you an article about um, you hosting the Looney Tunes, and it mentions in that article that I wrote for the TV Party website that. After Ms. Ginger McManus left, let's take a trip. She hosted a Looney Tunes cartoon show at WRTV Channel. I remember when you were interviewed by Alan Combs when he still does radio to WNBC that somebody called and said, I found out your daughter did the Looney Tunes at Channel 9. Well, that wasn't your daughter. That was Ms. McManus who did that. Yeah, not my daughter. My daughter is the executive in charge for um, the show called um, Extra, which is a syndicated national show. I, yeah. I remember so, um, that. Uh, we need to move on to. A, uh, we only have a few minutes left. Oh, yeah, I'm uh, sorry, uh, Kevin. I didn't mean to... okay. That's good because I'm hungry. I have to have dinner. So yeah, I just wanted to, to, to keep you. Thanks a lot, Kevin. And um, thanks, back Kevin, and, and everybody for 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 joining in on this thing. Thanks, Randy. Um, so before we uh, go, I just want to think if you can give me. Uh, really wanted to get more into depth on this, but if you can give me a couple of things you you really learned from your experience as a as a POW in Germany. Oh, uh, yeah, that was a very um seminal part of my life because um you you have to find out about your limits and your and and what you can do and how you deal with it. There are a lot of lessons to be taken away from that time in prison camp. Um but I think the most critical moment came when when you when you're captured, when you're first captured and you're thrown into prison camp, there's a sense of helplessness. You go sort of numb. You're, you're here in this environment. You have no power. They all have power over you. You're you're there, and you tend to become sort of uh, quiet and, and, and curled up. But uh, there was an older man in the second PO. We were in the first period, and then we moved to another POW camp. And there was an older man who might have been 28 by then who sort of adopted me, and he said, okay, I want you to do two things. I want you to shave, and I want you to wash out your socks. Now, it seems like a simple thing, mm-hmm. but in effect, it wasn't, because we had one razor, an old two-edge razor blade, uh, that was for twelve hundred, 240 men. And it was, you know, you can imagine how dull the blade was. We also had only an outhouse, only cold water, no soap, and certainly no shaving cream. Mm-hmm. It was in the middle of January, very cold. And because he asked me to do it, I said, okay, I'll do it. And I went out to that outhouse, and I stood there, and every time I cut a follicle, it brought tears to my eyes. And then it took me maybe 20 minutes to finally finish shaving. I had not shaven since I had been captured. And... Then I washed out my socks with my frozen fingers about to fall off as best I could and came in and put them on the belly, one pot belly stove we had in that barracks. But what I had done, as I, had re- I had taken back control of my own life. I had now made my own decision. I had now dealt with my own reality. I had gone back and said, all right, I'm captured, but I'm not helpless. And that was a, 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 a wonderful lesson to learn, that you, you, you know, don't surrender. You can surrender your body, but not your insides. Somewhere inside of me, inside of me, 
barbed wire had come down. Mm. That's great. So, Sonny Fox, I need to thank you so effusively, effusively for being on my show, for making this happen for me. I, it's tremendously exciting for me. I'm very well, honored. And, and, and if you want to pay me back, just get me a ticket to the Giants playoff games. Uh, okay. <laughs> but but make sure they get the Giants playoff games. I tell you, for the first few minutes on the game last Sunday, I wasn't sure they were going to make, ever make the playoffs. Yeah, I actually we had tickets until they did the PSL thing, and I just couldn't afford a forty thousand dollars for the rights for tickets. Oh no, 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 no! They got to be. But free. I actually gave them up. They got to be free for God's sake. Otherwise, the heck with it. No, I know friends. I have friends who have a box there. Oh, in that case, and you can take me to the to the. I uh, no, Well, I think there are people ahead of you. Oh, okay. I would have treated uh, you to pretzels or something. Yeah. Anyway, kind of... listen, I hope that some people have watched and I hope that they will buy the book. It's called But You Made the Front Page. It's available on, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Google and it's download <laughs> it's it, both in soft covered and in ebook version and it's available and if any of you do get it and do read it, I would love to hear from you guys about what you take away from it. So please get in touch. I can give you the email address right now if you want. My sure. email address, which is sfox at sunnyfoxconsultants.com. And, you know, and if you want me to sign a book, send it to me, and I'll be glad to sign it and send it back to you. I have a link uh, directly to the book on Amazon on the show page if anybody is, uh, wants to get it there. And now I'm going to send you out in New Orleans style. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. How do you like that? Thank you again, Mr. Sonny Fox. And Thank will... you for being such a wonderful host and being such a loyal friend over the years. Absolutely. My honor. Say hello to Dad. I will, absolutely. And you say hello to Carl Reiner for me, even though he doesn't I... know me. <laughs> I'll mention your name. I'm not sure how it'll work. Okay. Here we go. New Orleans style. Uh-huh.